Welcome, everyone, to this PhD Life, the podcast devoted to having casual conversations about research, being a researcher, and all the stuff between. I am your host, Alyssa Cortez Kennedy, and with me is Dr. Sandra Guzman Foster. Hello. Hello. How are you doing today? Doing pretty good. How about you? It's been a week. It's I know. It's been a week. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it's just because academics is really crazy during the summer or it's just too hot outside I think it's probably both (laughs) (laughs) well we're almost done with June so hopefully (laughs) we'll see how the rest of the month goes so we have a jam-packed session today we have a lot of stuff to go over because today we are talking about qualitative research method what it is why it's important and how it is used Um, And share some of our favorite qualitative experiences and projects that we've either been a part of or seen in society as an observer. And then, of course, I know a lot of our listeners were very excited because today we're going to have the lightning round for the most asked questions about quantitative. But you guys are going to have to wait till the end of the show. Yes, that is right. You must listen to the whole show first. (laughs) I know our students are going to be so excited about that. (laughs) Sorry, guys. So you and I are uh, two peas in a pod when it comes to qualitative research. We both love it. And um, it's something that we have a passion for. Not that we hate quantitative research, but qualitative research is a lot different in how it's used and how you tell people's stories. So I'm super excited to uh, be talking about that today with you. So let's get started. What is qualitative research to you, Dr. Guzman Foster? Qualitative research to me is a methodology that you use to share people's experiences. And that could be in any form, like a story, a picture, a video. So what's great about qualitative research is that you can use your creative juices and be as creative as you want to in order to make profound information available to your audience. And what I mean by by profound is, yes, we see startling statistics out there, but what's really behind those startling statistics? Um, So if I know that there's a community in rural Texas where, you know, children under 16 are dying from, let's say, the water system, then you want to go in and if if it's showing that 80% of the children are dying, well, who are those 80% of children? What are their living conditions? What are their health conditions? What are their family situations? What is their economic status? And and why are they exposed to this water problem? Mm-hmm. Um, go ahead. I think there's a lot of different stories that can be told in qualitative research. And, you know, qualitative research, just like quantitative, it surrounds us. And I think we, as a society, we don't even realize that we're telling our own story or someone else's story every single day and the I, power in that. I agree. I, I, there's this really great statement that I love. It, it's your story matters. Um, and I always, that's where I come from when I'm looking at my research and doing, designing my qualitative research studies. It's because people's stories do matter. 
Um, and, and I'm a big proponent of that. And even today, what we're seeing socially, imagine the stories you can get right now of people who are actually participating in the protests, both sides, um, what's happening, what's going through their mind, what are kids thinking? Young people today are so much more um, active and vociferous, which I think is great because they're our future. They'll be taking care of me when I'm old. So <laughs> I want I want strong youth, you know, and I, I always remind people that they are our, our jewels for the future and we have to really nurture them, love them and care for them and make sure they have what they need so they can lead this country and make sure we're all in a safe, better place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think qualitative research, you know, it, it stems back to exactly what you're talking about, those developmental stages where children start to realize their surroundings, whether it be directly or indirectly. And a lot of those things they see, um, obviously from a very different perspective because they're much more forgiving. They um, tend to adapt much faster. And, you know, as adults, we tend to just have our own perspective or an idea of what we think is going on. And um, it's really important, I think, in qualitative research to understand that that starts at a very, very young developmental age and how you actually start to tell your story. I agree that you're absolutely correct. And, and you're absolutely right. I mean, to the, the generations that are following us are very different. Um, and and, and the, that's the problem is that maybe back in the day we were told not to share mm-hmm. our story, be private about who you are. But when, when you have something to share that's important and will impact your life and the life of others, mostly the life of others and policy, why not tell that story? Because policymakers need to see not just the numbers, but hear the stories behind those numbers in order for us to see change at the policy level. And I'm talking about all policies, health, home, um, housing, you know, educational policy, social policy, everything. Mm-hmm. Um, who, who's being impacted and how are they being impacted? And the only people who can answer that question are people who are living through it. Yeah. Qualitative research, though, is relatively new to the methodology side. How how young would you say qualitative research is compared to quantitative statistics? I think it's fairly young. It's It's been around. I, I, I would say that the first people who really helped spread it were sociologists because they study cultures and anthropologists as well. Mm-hmm. They go out and they study culture. So I think that it's been used for a while, but I don't think it started getting into the mainstream and other you know, areas or disciplines until a while. So I would say it's fairly young. Um, it's becoming more um, accepted, but it's still not the golden rule. And I don't know if it ever will be, um, but it, that's why the whole idea of mixed methods is trying to make a, a huge impact because people believe that if you have two methods align with each other, then you do get a a better picture of what's happening. But qualitative research goes much, much deeper. I mean, there's just several different ways you can tell a story and you can share people's experiences that really matter. Yeah. And I think you, you hit the nail on the head when you said we're seeing it, you know, firsthand with a lot of the movements that are going on right now and the social change. And um, I'll bring up something. Today is Juneteenth. Um, ever celebrated Juneteenth? Never. I don't ever remember it being celebrated the way it's being celebrated this year. And that says something. That says something about the movement that we're in and, you know, how people are trying to 
uh, not only change the progression of, of how we view each other, but also um, telling their own story in the midst of all of that. I agree. I mean, I used to teach in Austin and, and I knew about Juneteenth because many of my students would celebrate and I would be invited to celebrations on Juneteenth. Mm-hmm. So I was surprised that a lot of people didn't know what it was. But again, that, like you said, it goes to show what is being excluded, who's being silenced. And so now we've got to figure out why that's been happening and why hasn't this holiday been known by many people mm-hmm. until today? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's almost shocking to me. But again, it's based on our experiences as well. Um, and, and it goes back to the curriculum that's taught in schools. You know, what is being taught to our students and whose histories are being taught and and how those his, who's writing those histories yeah. is, is something else that we need to actually consider as well. Yeah, and how the, how, uh, the different types of histories are carried through. Because, for example, like if you're in Texas, you're going to learn about Texas history. You're not going to learn about Deep South history and all of the other components that went along with that. Or if you're in a, another country, like, for example, Croatia or uh, Romania, you're going to obviously learn about Croatian or Romanian historical content. You're not going to be exposed to other types of content unless you actually have the ability to travel or you know somebody who does. Exactly. And even with the world history courses, there's not enough time to touch on everything that's happened in the world. Yep. And most of the time the books are wrong, but that's just my... Yep. <laughs> nope. You hit no, Again, that goes back to who's writing the books and who's on the stories. <laughs> I just, you know, something I want to throw out there. Let's yep. think about who's writing the well, books. <laughs> and it's true. And even with, you'll see that in the social movements, there's been a lot of, um, like, I have a lot of colleagues across the country who are like me. We're critical race theorists. We look at the world very differently. A lot of our research is based on things that are happening today. And so a lot of them are, are sharing that it's time for our students to be represented in our textbooks, mm-hmm. but they continue to be excluded. So their history is being excluded. Um, but it's time. I know we can't fit everybody in, but you've got to fit most people, and especially if your school district mirrors certain populations, that population is to be mirrored and represented in the books, and or even in the supplemental information that they're learning, whatever it's a handout or a project. Um, the message, just like right now, that you know people's lives don't matter, especially Black lives don't matter. Is kids are thinking, well, we're not valued in school, so why should I be here mm-hmm. if I don't see myself in the curriculum? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it, it's a it's a long story for another time, <laughs> but that is something that is huge about the curriculum in schools, and um, it's one of my my um, passions is to teach future teachers how to um, incorporate other people's stories and the counter narrative, yeah. because there's always always another side to a story. And I think we're gonna have to, you know, thinking about organizations and what's going on right now is, you know, re-educating and continuing to educate, you know, consistently on diversity and ethics and social justice and change, because we are living in a uh, global society, meaning that, you know, we have so many different cultures now, whereas as less than 20 years ago, we had, you know, think of South Texas. If you're from the Rio Grande Valley, in Brownsville, you know, there were probably three or four African-American kids that went to your high school. Maybe, maybe that. And so the exposure in some areas is still so minimal to culture diversity that it is, it's a tough 
topic to bring up. It really is. When I was teaching in Colorado and I was teaching students from rural Wyoming, they've never had exposure to Latino students. Mm -hmm. And when we would talk about second language learners or anybody who's a second language learner, mm -hmm. they had no idea. And, and well, less loan to African-Americans or black folk, you know, population, they had no idea or exposure. All they knew is what they read or saw on TV, which leads to stereotypes, which is not a good thing either. Yeah. <laughs> I always laugh because everyone thinks my husband is Hispanic. And so when we go to the Valley to visit family, they automatically start speaking to him in Spanish. <laughs> and he is from Eastern Europe. He's from like the mountains of Romania, like where Dracula was from. So <laughs> he's like, no, I am not your people. <laughs> right. And, and, you know, that brings up a very, something very important about when we do research, you know, a lot of times people want to, collect demographic data mm -hmm. so I and so that you should because you, whatever your study your research is doing if it's needed then you need to grab it but you have to understand as a researcher you cannot do the identification you've got to ask the person so if your husband they think he's let's say he was in a study someone is observing him they're going to check Hispanic you're, you're right. right you know and so as a researcher you cannot and I that's one of the flaws I think a lot of researchers do is they just assume they know but yeah. they don't and you've really got to ask the participant, how do you identify yourself? Yeah. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that because it has happened numerous, numerous times. And it's so funny because he'll look at me and he's like, say something. I don't know what to say. <laughs> and then, you know, I'm I'm like very fair toned. And so they don't yes. expect me to start speaking in Spanish. But it's just really funny because it's the assumption of, well, he's brown. So he has right. to be some sort of Mexican, uh, Central American, Spanish descent, something along those lines. Yep. It happens too often. I think people just need to start embracing the differences and learn from each other. And, you know, you don't just go to a church and go, so who are you and how do you identify yourself? Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, you can't, you can't do that. But yeah. through conversation or getting to know that person, then you learn more. But, yeah, it's, a, it's something that we all need to teach ourselves to do a better job at. So while we know that now we know that, you know, qualitative research is fairly new to um, to research methods and it being accepted, but it's not in the sense of telling the human story. It's something that's been used for a really long time, directly or indirectly. Um, what is your favorite qualitative study or something that you saw or have seen um, that has really stood out to you that you said, wow, that that is going to change someone's perspective or view in the world. When I was in uh, grad school, I read a book called um, Jonathan Kozol. Oh my God, what's the title of it? Oh my God, I can't I think I forgot the name of it. Um, okay, I have to, I have to Google it. But anyway, <laughs> Jonathan Kozol wrote a book, and what he did was, oh, Savage Inequalities. Savage Inequalities. So he wrote a book, and that's the first book ever that impacted policies in the 70s. Mm -hmm. So I remember thinking, I want to be Jonathan Kozol. And my professor's like, those are some big shoes I need to fill. <laughs> so I was, I'm, you know, optimistic, idealistic. Yeah. So um, his book really, really showed stories of kids from different areas in the United States, growing up in poverty, everything from health policies, what kind of schools they went to that were so horrible that you wouldn't even want to send your own children to. He actually had a chapter out of San Antonio um, he had a chapter of Brooklyn. He had a chapter of Los Angeles. I want to say Miami is another one. So big urban areas. 
Um, but that was my favorite book because he told stories of children and their families and how they were impacted by policies. And he made it so real and rich that as you were reading it, you can actually envision what these students were going through in their daily lives. Mm. And so to me, I was like, this is so profound. And if this kind of stuff really impacts policy, wow. So he's done that his whole entire life. He's mm. totally, that he's dedicated his whole entire life to doing that so much that he doesn't even have his own family, but he travels and does these things because that, that's how much he cares about what's happening with children in this country um, who live in poverty. So that was my favorite book. And that, that was the one that I said, this is what I think I wanted, not exactly what he did, but this is the kind of research I think I, I wanna do. Yeah. Um, but I, I've done case study, I've done narrative. Um, ethnography, I have never done, but I would say that I was close to doing ethnography at one point, but I have never done that. But um, narrative is one of my favorites too, because that really does kind of um, really, let's you paint a picture with words, if that makes sense. Right. You paint a picture with words and you're, you're, you're telling the students um, or a participant's story. And hopefully the goal is that as you're reading that story, you can envision what's happening and occurring, just like he did when he wrote his book. Mm-hmm. Um, and in case study, you can have, so the great thing about qualitative research too is that you can have a case study where you're studying a, a system or an area or a bounded system and you can use narrative as the way you present your data. So you can use two different kinds of uh, methodologies with one and still get the story out, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And that's why I say qualitative research is different because there's no script. So like with quantitative, there are steps and processes that you must follow if you do a quasi-experimental or correlational design. You have to follow certain steps. But with qualitative, there are no steps to follow. It's pretty much what is happening, how are you gathering the data, and what are you getting out of it, and how am I going to report it in a you know, in a rich, thick description so others can actually see my participants, that my participants' lives through their, through their eyes and through their stories. Yeah. Well, I have, you and I were a part of narrative and one of the assignments that you gave me in your class. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but it was so, it really was profound because um, what we did was we interviewed as a, as a class, we looked at uh, religion discrimination and how that has impacted our lives, has or has not. Um, and then we were partnered with somebody who was of a different religion. And we were able to um, visit their church, their synagogue, um, their other places of worship, get to know them through personal interview. And then at the end, we did an entire focus group. And there were so many different parts of that research that stood out for different reasons. Um, being able to individually connect and then also being able to see the other individuals come together and make connections, not even having um, any other prior knowledge to what had already been done in the other interviews, if that makes sense. Yes. And it, I'll say this, when my partner wrote up my paper, um, there were a couple things in there that she hit spot on but I never realized about myself. One of them being that I tend to not rely on anything other than just being led by the Holy Spirit. That's really big in my life. And I just kind of go with the flow. Like if it's meant to happen, it will happen. And while I knew that 
seeing somebody else pick up on that and write about how I express that or how I go about my daily life was mind blowing to me <laughs> because I, I just got, I just got chills when you yeah. said that. Cause I was like, yes, <laughs> I really just didn't. And then I also realized that I, I tend to be a little bit more closed off when it comes to my religion, because I'm so sacred about it mm-hmm. that it's, um, I, I keep it very personal because it's so sacred to me. And sometimes that may come across the wrong way to individuals. And it's not a bad thing. It's just, it's something that she noticed as a researcher. And it's true. But I didn't realize that until I was reading what she wrote. And I was like, oh my gosh. Yeah. (laughs) And, you know, and that, that's the thing is that she interpreted your, through your interview focus group and visiting your place of worship she was able to pick all of that up, whether you did it non-verbally or verbally, gave her, you know, we talked about photos or artifacts as well. Mm-hmm. But the fact that she was able to interpret what you, what, what, what your religion means to you is what qualitative research is about. And then remember, we did member check and I asked you guys to read yeah. each other's stories to make sure. And that was the whole point because I wanted you, you to see it is mind blowing when you're like, oh I God, X'd I- everything out. No, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> this is not me at all. <laughs> But it is really, and, and to see the, the eyes open, like when I did it with, with my students, the one of my participants, when I did my dissertation with high school students, they were just, their eyes got big and they're like, oh my God, this is exactly what I said, but I didn't even know that this is what I said. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So and for them to see it come together, they were just so appreciative that their story was going to get out. It's, and- it, if you have the opportunity to be a part of a narrative, it is... Um, you can't describe it until you actually go through the process and then you see your work for what it is afterwards. If you truly like devote yourself to it, if you're not going to devote yourself to it and take the time to really spend time with your subjects or do the observations, you're going to miss things. And I think, I think that's why it works so well in, in that particular semester is that everyone was really invested into each other's um, lives and we just had a really great group and it worked so well. I agree. And you know, when you talk about religion and those are controversial topics, I wasn't really sure how people were going to react. Yeah. And <laughs> I was a little worried, but it, I was glad everybody was open to the idea. And, and as researchers, we have to be open to an idea like mm-hmm. that because, you know, you know, and speaking of when you're out doing your interviews, you know, you have to also watch your nonverbal behavior. Mm-hmm. So if your partner said something that was so offensive, you can't like just get up and walk out of the room <laughs> or you can't just sit there and cross your arms and make a face. You, you can't do those things because that impacts how they respond. You have to be you have to be aware of your nonverbal behavior as well, because it could come off wrong to the participant and then they're going to shut down. Yeah. And they won't tell their story. And it does happen. You know, yeah. it it depends, you know, if you're doing focus groups or um, observations, like at a specific place. And it does happen. I saw it happen. But it, it was good that I saw that that happened in a respectful way because mm-hmm. it showed how you completely remove your bias and how you just you just keep going with the flow of wherever you're at. Um, and that's difficult. It really is. <laughs> yes, it is. Um, it really is. <laughs> so I think that that was, if you ever have an opportunity to be a part of a narrative, then definitely do it. And I would do another narrative in a heartbeat. Um, yeah. One of the people that you exposed me to was Anna Drive Smith. 
and she does qualitative research um, in the form of um, plays. But she actually goes and interviews individuals in specific populations. And then she comes back and she learns their whole script and not, I hate to use the word mimic, but I can't think of anything else right now. She mimics exactly how they tell their story, how they're sitting, their facial expression, their uh, hand movements, their eye coordination. It's amazing. Yeah, she's powerful. Her, um, she had a a special on HBO called Notes from the Field. Mm -hmm. And that changed my whole life. It really did. (laughs) It did. That's Um, good. I think that's why she did did it, to be honest. She wanted people to see it. Yeah. But go ahead. Go ahead. No, 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 no. Okay. So we're, we're on a roll here. See how excited we get about (laughs) We're both like wanting (laughs) Yeah, I, I, I saw that and I was like, wow. And that's what I mean. Again, that's another creative spin on qualitative mm-hmm. research. It was so profound that it made an impact on you. And, and as many people who have talked about how powerful and profound her one act play is, because that's exactly what she does. She t- takes people's lives and puts them on stage. And how profound is that? I'm even getting chills just talking about it because <laughs> it was so powerful. Yeah, and it's it's tough. It's tough to listen to those stories, interviewing, doing focus groups, but then also to have to reinterpret them and get the points across exactly how they were said in the original script. And people, um, people are changed by that. I don't think people understand someone's story until they actually can feel, see, or hear the pain or the happiness or the sadness in, in their voice and the other person's voice. Absolutely. One of my uh, master's students, a couple of semesters ago, she, her capstone, she wrote a play on um, what students experience in graduate school. So stress, anxiety, depression, and she got actors. She, that's what she does. She teaches drama and she got actors to portray stuff she learned from surveys she handed out to students Mm -hmm. and it was so powerful and a lot of the students in the audience could relate there were tears there were you know laughs at the end they had conversation it was one of the most profound capsules i've ever seen and i thought oh my god this is (laughs) it's really happening i've seen her (laughs) doing an action i was so proud of her but the fact that she was able to come with that, that her own her own way her own stuff she had playwrights friends who were from New York playwrights helper come up with some of the scenes after she shared the data Mm -hmm. but it was it was phenomenal so I want to ask you when you do something like that because I'm sure this is a question that we'll get how as a researcher do we keep the um like a privacy or a confidentiality when you're doing something like that um so the idea is that you don't ever want to, I mean, if you have to get like really specific, first of all, people have to feel, let me step back for a second. When you do qualitative research, and you have to go through the IRB approval. They will look at the questions you're going to ask. And so they mm-hmm. are the governing board that says this question is going to cause too much stress. You need to remove it or revise it because the last thing that they want to do is cause any kind of emotional harm in anyone. So mm-hmm. people get upset about that, but if you think about it, it's to protect the participants. Um, I think that people need to understand IRB is not a UIW thing. It's a federal body. It's, 
federal regulations that we must follow and the university is making sure we're following those regulations. Um, so what she did was even when she asked a survey, she um, asked open-ended questions, but she didn't ask for anybody's name. So it was an anonymous survey. She did it digitally on SurveyMonkey. So she didn't know who answered what. So she just took what she got from the surveys and there were open-ended questions and created this play. So if you can do it like that and, and, and promise and guarantee that no one is going to be identified, then you're in good hands and mm -hmm. that's the way to do it. But because we're working with, um, you know, you get consent, right? But you don't know who answered what. Um, so the idea is do the consent separately because a lot of people when they do like survey monkey, they have the consent right before they take it. Well, that mm -hmm. connects to the survey. So you've got to figure out a way to do it differently so that you don't see who signed the consent and then mm -hmm. who got the survey right after. So there's ways mm -hmm. you've got to figure out where you can actually protect your subject because the last thing you want is for stories to get out that, oh, she, you know, she suffers from depression. She, she takes Prozac four times a day. That's what you don't want. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? You don't want that to get out because that's private. And that's, a lot of people don't want anybody to know except their doctor and their family, right? So there's things yeah. we have to really consider and be very conscious of because the last thing we want to do is harm somebody and then they harm themselves. Right. And it, it does happen. Yes. <laughs> yes. There are people who, and I think it's also important at this point to disclose that when a participant wants to leave a research project, by all means, they're allowed Absolutely. to leave. And there's the other side. So if, if you're interviewing or working with someone who's a minor and they divulge information that is sexual abuse, verbal, right. you know, any kind of abuse, you have to report it. You cannot mm -hmm. not report it because that is your responsibility because that person is in danger. Um, mm -hmm. So it, it can be very stressful for someone to go, oh, my God, now what do I do? But you need to really do something about it and not ignore it because something bad could happen. And if something happens, that person can say, well, I told the researcher. And so let, let me throw one mm -hmm. more thing in there. Another wrench for <laughs> you. <laughs> What if you are working with a population, let's say like on a reservation or internationally, how are you held accountable for that? Um, because as long as you're a student at, IR, at UIW, you are held accountable because you went through the process of UIW's IRB. International okay. laws are very different. So let's say you graduated from UIW, you moved to Germany, you want to do a study. Depends on the institution you're working for. So the institution requires IRB, then you have to follow their IRB. Um, but you always have to somehow have protection for the for the um, participants. So it just depends where you work. So like even if, for example, if I wanted to go into a school right now and do um, research, I not only have to have UID, UIW approval from their IRB, but I have to have the school district's approval as well because they have okay. policies and regulations as well because they want to protect their students. Mm hmm. So a lot of policy, policy, yes. policy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> a lot of doors to go yes. through, check marks, T's and I's to be dotted. So let me ask you this. How do you think that as we are going through all these current events and changes, how do you think it's going to progress qualitative research right now? Oh, I think it's going it, to, I think we're going to see a lot of research come out of this in the next two years, whether it's in, um, stories, narratives, whether it's an art form of some sort, whether it's pictures, photo, like photo voice or plays, I think we're going to see a, a lot of it because I, you know, even people who um, take pictures uh, and journalists um, who are writing their stories, someone could easily just contact those people and say, hey, can we work together? 
you know, of course, depending on where you are and do your research. But I think we're going to see a lot of stories come out of this whole movement from many different people, from many different generations and many different ages. And there's so many different ways to tell the stories. You know, if you think back to like people who even journal, that's someone's story. And depending how far back they go, you know, how much narrative you have and how much timeline you have there's so many different ways to tell someone's story and so it's going to be very exciting to see what comes from um, unfortunate events but events that need to happen in order to see things to progress and move forward and change yeah historical narrative is becoming more popular because of that people want to know what happened in the past and how it's related to today Mm -hmm. so even if you were to look at someone who lived in the 1800s and maybe an, an ancestor that's living today you can compare to see how either their stories are similar or how different they are, and depending on the social movements that were occurring during that time. I think something to think about, too, is um, when we think of, like, Ellis Island and how immigrants come into the country, all of that is considered qualitative research because they were taking people's names down, where they were from, um, how many children, their surname, and they they had actual details to um, capture that moment. And so there's there's different types of qualitative research that you can find throughout the historical content of our country and others. I agree and imagine how many people stories I mean I remember growing up the only thing I knew about Nazi Germany was Anne Frank besides learning, mm-hmm. learning about the war in school but now we're seeing more stories come out of people who helped in the Holocaust and helped you know get, get the get Jewish people out of Germany so they can be safe you're hearing all these stories, and you're like, well, who are these people? So those people are still out there who have these stories that just haven't been told. Yeah. And I think that's one thing that angers a lot of people is there is a lot of um, events that have happened that people still say, well, it didn't yes. happen. And that's why this is exactly because those stories are falling off. And eventually they're right. We won't have them to tell because either people were afraid or they would use it um, against them. And, or it was just, if you, if you talk, if those stories are lost, then how do we explain to the next generation, this can't happen because it already has. You're absolutely correct. And that's the, the why, again, why qualitative research is important because you can gather those stories and have archives and keep them mm-hmm. and continue to write and share. Um, I'm always asking my mom to tell me stories of when she grew up and my, my grandparents, because they died at such a young age. I hardly got to know them. And mm-hmm. so I want to know more about so I'll, tell, I'll record her, too, because I'm like, Mom, I'm going to write this down someday because I want my nieces and my nephews and their children to continue to know where, you know, what my parents experienced growing up and what we experienced. Yeah. And, you know, we stand on the shoulders of those who come before us and what's, you know, what's progressed, what hasn't changed, those kinds of things that we're even seeing today. Yeah. Well, it's exciting, and I think we're going to see a lot of qualitative research in the next couple of years. I do, too, and I'm excited to see what they come up with. I know, especially from the classes that you have, because <laughs> those are the best students in the world. <laughs> Obviously, of course. <laughs> <laughs> okay, guys, so we're going to do our first lightning round. Are you I ready? I am ready. Okay, so this lightning round is going to cover quantitative Q&A from last week. We had a lot of questions. Did you I, see? I did, many? yes. I was very excited to see that. I was so excited, and so I went through, and I even coded and themed them <laughs> <laughs> using my research skills. Spoken like a qualitative researcher. <laughs> yeah, you, you know you've been in school, like, for 95 years when you start doing that on the right. side. 
Oh my gosh. <laughs> okay. So first question we had was what is a reasonable quantitative research sample size? So this really depends on your question and it depends on what you're asking. I would say that, that most people, when they're like, I'm thinking of some of the students I've worked with in the past, um, if they're doing surveys, they always went over 100 because they wanted to get at least 50% of the of people to respond. So the, I, I cannot give you a deadlock number, but I can just say that you want to have more than what you think is going to respond because if you don't have enough that are responding, then your sample is going to end up being really, really small and people are going to say your study is not valid or credible. Mm -hmm. Are customer reviews a part of open-ended questions that we usually find in qualitative research? No, that's more like marketing research. So when you have open-ended uh, questions in your quantitative studies, it's more about what you're trying to find out. So, for example, if you're looking at an, an intervention and you're looking at whether or not something has changed or improved because of an intervention, a, an open-ended question would be something like, were there any surprises you've learned about yourself because of the intervention? So it's not really about the quality of the intervention. It's more about what their experiences were like because of the intervention. So market mm -hmm. research is very different than the kind of questions you would ask in a quantitative survey. As a novice researcher, how will I know which method fits my research question? Well, this depends on how much you know about each method, uh, methodology. So for example, if I'm looking for a relationship between two variables, then I'm obviously going to do a correlational study. Mm -hmm. If I'm looking at frequency and number of times somebody experiences something that I'm looking at descriptive, um, if I'm looking at a comparison and, or cause and effect, then you're going to do probably experimental. So it just really depends on what your question is and what you're trying to learn from that question. I love this next question. I never even thought about this. So whoever wrote this question on the board, y'all are like way ahead of me. You made me look really <laughs> I'm at the end of coursework and I never even thought about this. So uh, kudos to you. Uh, is qualitative research more expensive to conduct since researchers spend more time on the field? And this depends on where your research is. If it's away from where you live, then yes, because you're either looking to stay somewhere with a relative or staying at a, you know, something like that, a hotel, you're looking at mileage for gas. What's really expensive about qualitative research is the transcriptions. If you don't do them yourself, which could take a really long time, most students mm -hmm. now pay for someone to actually transcribe their, their interviews. That's where the costs get really, really high. Um, so it is more expensive, I would say, than quantitative. The quantitative piece, um, you know, now that we have digital surveys, you can do digital surveys. So, you know, gone are the days when you had to mail out surveys, you know, and, post, you know, <laughs> Posted stamp. <laughs> you said envelope. Knock on someone's exactly. door. <laughs> so that's a little bit different, but qualitative research is a little bit more expensive because of that. You're spending time on gas. Time is also money. Um, and again, the transcriptions, copies of consent forms, if you're not doing it digitally, those kinds of things. So I guess you want to network and make friends in like every city. Exactly. Just that's case. exactly right. <laughs> I had a member getting off subject a little bit. I had a member, um, this was a really long time ago when I was working in total loss and he had, um, wrecked his vehicle out in Hawaii and super nice guy. And at the end of the call, he was like, whenever you're in Hawaii, you and your husband come stay with me and my wife. <laughs> and I was like, okay, sir. Sure. <laughs> but it like, that would totally come yeah, handy. Exactly. I would totally That's exactly right. Yep. 
I think it was like a retired colonel or something. So I would have been safe. We're well, good. like even one of my colleagues, she was going to go on sabbatical and she had a friend in Los Angeles. And so she was going to do her study on urban schools in Los Angeles while she stayed with her friend. So, so yeah. she saved money on rent. <laughs> she didn't have to pay for a hotel or anything like that. So I was thinking, yeah, yeah. that's the way you do it. If you can make network and, you know, it helps. Trust me. Get on LinkedIn, people. <laughs> Oh, man. Okay, here's our next one. Uh, how do I understand which design my question falls under? I think we kind of already answered yes, that, Yes, right? Okay, next one. Um, how are researchers held accountable? Through the IRB process. Now, there's no one, like, checking on you, but, I, I you know, if something went wrong or was, or didn't go as planned, someone would say something, whether it was a participant or someone at that organization, um, but it, it would be found out some way or the, or, or the other. So there's been cases where, for example, um, students, or not students, but uh, researchers have fudged numbers because they didn't have all the data. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, and you can tell because if, if some, somebody actually goes and tries to do what you did and it didn't come out the same way, they realize the numbers weren't real. Um, mm. Qualitative research, if you, if you publish and you didn't do member checking mm, you're gonna get caught so <laughs> it's important that you that's how we, we we have those little things in place so you we you could be held accountable for your research yeah so if you do research in a town of three thousand and you say you got 4500 participants mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly <laughs> like uh, where'd the other 1500 come from <laughs> right exactly uh yeah, yeah does that really happen Yes, um, there's oh been goodness. there's even been times where people have like fallen in love with their participants. I mean, <laughs> you're just like what? <laughs> or some people end up stalking their participants. I mean, those are things you just don't do. And so, yeah, you've got to just check yourself before wow. and know and know what ethically you're responsible for as a researcher. Talk because about writing a rich picture piece. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> And then what happens is no one wants to be in part of a study anymore. If things go wrong. I mean, I remember I went to, I was studying in Colorado school and these teachers are like, no, we don't want to do it. And I was like, well, what's why? And they, because they had a bad experience with another researcher. Yeah. And so that makes a lot of sense. So I had to like really work at convincing them that they could trust me. It took months to do that, but I did it. But that was time that I could have used to start the study, but I thought it was worth it to try to get them on board. Mm-hmm. That is crazy. I can't believe that. <laughs> How do we hold other researchers accountable? Other researchers? Yes. Check and balance. So, you know, there's a lot of times when you're, if you're, if you have like a, like, for example, your chair, your chair can check to see how you're doing and and, and just kind of make sure that you're doing what you need to be doing um, as far as, you know, um, analyzing data, how you're collecting data, are you making sure you're keeping everything confidential, those kinds of things. So you can have someone do a check with you, but it cannot be someone who can actually see the data. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Mm -hmm. Finally, last but not least, how do we research things ethically? You have to be aware of your positionality. Um, As a researcher, you should always journal about your experiences the minute you leave your site. Because whatever you're feeling or experiencing will actually show some of your biases. So those biases will impact how you collected data. Those biases will also impact how you write your findings up. So you have to be aware and name 
what's going on. Um, because it's important that you understand that, you know, as I remember doing my dissertation as a former chair in my department, I had to remove my evaluation hat when I would see the teachers. Cause I was immediately, I was like, Oh my God, this is a horrible teacher. But I was like, I'm not here to, to see, you know, evaluate the teacher. I'm here to observe what's happening in the classroom and what's related to high stakes testing. Mm -hmm. But I wrote that on my, my journal and I realized that day I, that really impacted how I collected data. So I had to make sure I didn't let it impact how I did my write, wrote up my findings and my discussion piece because it was irrelevant. That's not what I was there for. I was focusing on something else. Yeah. Um, another thing is when you are out in public, you should never talk about your research. So mm -hmm. there's been cases where people have done research and they're out in a diner or somewhere and they're talking to their significant other and someone mentions what they're doing and somebody in the restaurant recognizes just by what you're talking about they can identify who you're talking about they go back to the parent and say hey you know i heard someone say blah 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 is your daughter or son part of a saying and then they find out they're like yeah so now you've just blown confidentiality <laughs> you've broken every rule you can think of and now you have to stop your study wow Mm -hmm. So you have to be really, really careful. And I don't think people realize that, mm -hmm. that, that when it comes to confidentiality, you may not share the data with anybody who does not have permission, who's not part of the study team. You cannot talk about it because especially in public, because if someone founds out they can figure out who it is, then you're in trouble. Mm. Yeah. Now I'm scared. <laughs> <laughs> don't be scared. Just I'm just doing like a <laughs> <laughs> then you're okay oh my gosh that is just <laughs> on me I can't no you're gonna be okay trust me I hope just so. just don't talk in public <laughs> you know you're walking down the hallway at UIW <laughs> you, you know, know are you talking about my neighbor <laughs> you know what's, okay so I'm gonna share this story because this really does happen so my husband and I were um we had taken an Alaskan cruise when I finished my master's that was my gift I wanted to go to Alaska so we, I graduated on Saturday, we left on Monday and we're dog sledding, like in the middle of nowhere on some sort of glacier up in Alaska. And we, uh, another couple that is going to be in the sled with us because it's a four person sled. And we start to talking to them and they're like, so where are you from? And my husband's like, oh, San Antonio. And he's like, oh, really? Uh, what do you do down there? And he mentions for and he goes oh my aunt works there and he goes oh really and he goes yeah she works in administration and her name's such 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 and such and it turns out that it was my husband's old admin at his store <laughs> See? and so we like all take a picture like in the middle of this <laughs> glacier and we send it to her like what a small world so it's true you don't know who you don't know who you're going to come across. And that's why it's important not to talk about any of your participants. Um, there's been cases where even in neighborhoods, uh, uh, someone says, I heard someone talk about Johnny the other day about his disability. You're just like, uh-oh. Yeah. So, again, you've got to be careful where you are and what you're saying. Yeah. It's truly remarkable who you'll run into. <laughs> I know. So true. So, luckily, we weren't talking smack about her, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, Exactly. <laughs> My goodness, that would not have ended well. Like, come home from Alaska without a job and we're completely right, exactly. broke. <laughs> it's expensive up there. Yep. All right. So, I think we got through them all. That was our first lightning round. Yay. You did all great. the work on it. <laughs> that was great, though. I hope the students um, 
are, are happy with the, the responses and learn, continue to learn more about these methodologies. Absolutely. So I think we covered a lot of ground today and we are going to hold another lightning round um, on our next podcast. And of course that will be towards qualitative research design. So we can't wait to get those questions in and I will code and theme them again. So I have them (laughs) for my records. Um, But in closing, I think it's really important that you and I um, share this, especially with the events today and that have been happening the last few weeks. And also just this whole 2020 year has been really (laughs) difficult. I agree. It's something else. Yeah. It's important for us, um, not only as me as a novice researcher, you as the professional, (laughs) um, but as human beings and as global citizens that in our closing, we remind our listeners that it is our duty as human beings to search deeper within ourselves and find truth. And truth is what is right and wrong. And that can mean a lot of different things for people. And considering all those recent events, it is important as scholars to remember that research and telling people's stories is important now more than ever. Um, And I think as researchers, we owe it to society to be an active part of change and create content that is meaningful and um, promotes change. And so we leave you hoping that you are excited about qualitative research and research that makes a difference for all individuals who have fought are fighting and will fight for equality and dignity for the human race. And just remember that it starts with you and me. Well stated. Nice synopsis. Thank you. All right, guys, we will see you on the flip side. This is another episode of this PhD 